I'm Joy Manning, and this is Eat, Drink, Think, a podcast brought to you by Edible Communities, the James Beard Award-winning network of magazines published across the U.S. and Canada. Together, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. In this episode, we're digging into the important issue of hunger. Unfortunately, it's more timely than ever. Last year saw the first uptick in food insecurity in America in several years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's episode, I talked to author and activist Mark Winnie, whose work on hunger spans an astonishing five decades. For another perspective on the topic, we've got Leanne Brown. She literally wrote the book on how to eat well on a SNAP budget. But let's start with my conversation with Ben Perkins. Ben Perkins is CEO of Wholesome Wave, a national nonprofit working to increase access to healthy food for all. Before joining Wholesome Wave, Ben held leadership roles with the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. He's also an ordained minister with a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you. It's great uh, being here. You've worked in public health for a very long time, as I understand it, but I believe Wholesome Wave is the first organization you've led that has a specific food focus. Why that? Why that did you want to make that shift? Well, actually, interestingly enough, before I started uh, with Wholesome Wave, I was with the American Heart Association, and it was during, in my six-year tenure at the Heart Association, that last year um, COVID hit. And at the Heart Association, food was always uh, an issue, a focus. And uh, when the when COVID hit, of course, it became even more of a focus. I had also during that time been recruited to be on the board of a local nonprofit in the Boston area that also focused on food security. And so during that time, I developed an interest in in the issue of food and nutrition security. And this opportunity was presented uh, to lead the organization, to lead Wholesome Wave. And one of the things that really appealed to me about Wholesome Wave was its focus on the role of policy in uh, impacting uh, population health. Uh, in my work in public health, I had done a lot of, of work in terms of individual and community level kinds of interventions, but increasingly realized that if we're truly going to impact the health of thousands and millions of folks, that we need to uh, look at things like policy. And because Wholesome Wave, uh, its origins were really in this idea of uh, looking at policy and, and impacting uh, policy uh, for population health. I was really intrigued with uh, the opportunity to lead an organization that had a deep understanding of uh, how to move populations towards health. Yes. As you know, I wrote about uh, Wholesome Wave founder Michelle Nishan for the Edible Communities magazine, and we talked a lot about those policies. Wholesome Wave was a pioneer in uh, SNAP doubling programs in farmers markets and grocery stores. So obviously the two are very interconnected. Um, Another thing that uh, Michelle and I talked about was a shift that Wholesome Wave is making to focusing from on food insecurity to more of nutrition insecurity. And I wonder if you could give me your perspective on the difference between those two terms. How do you define food 
insecurity or security versus nutrition insecurity? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And in many ways, it goes back to the very founding of the organization. Uh, Michelle has said that it's not just about getting people food. It's about getting people the right food. And in our case, uh, healthy produce, healthy fruits and vegetables. So the idea here is that there, one way to think about food is um, there's this sort of notion of foods that are energy dense. So they, you, you get a lot of calories out of them and that's important. Having meeting a daily requirement of, of calories to fuel the body is important. And it's also important to have foods that are what we call nutrient dense. So foods that not only fill your stomach, but also give you the proper nutrients so that you operate at an optimal level. So foods that are energy dense may not necessarily be nutrient dense. And so we want to also make sure that the folk that we focus on foods, and in our case, again, healthy fruits and vegetables, that we know to be nutrient dense, uh, because that's a key component of health. People can get enough calories and still theoretically be starving in the sense that their body isn't getting the nutrients that it needs to function optimally. Yeah, I mean, that's where I really see an overlap between your work at the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association and this work, because it's those nutrient-dense foods that are associated with better health outcomes and prevention of diseases like heart disease. Correct. Absolutely. Um, you've said that your top priority at Wholesome Wave is ensuring poverty is not a barrier to choosing fruits and vegetables. And I, I did mention uh, the SNAP doubling program from Wholesome Wave. Now here in the middle of uh, 2021, how is Wholesome Wave working towards the goal of removing those barriers to choosing fruits and vegetables? So uh, key to removing those barriers is really, it sort of goes back to the beginning of our conversation, which is around looking at opportunities to impact policy. So uh, key to our work, we're looking at uh, ways to embed uh, the concept of produce prescription programs into both uh, federal and state level policy. Uh, because again, what we know is that if you can get something embedded in policy, in this case, Medicare and Medicaid, you get scale uh, in a way that if we're just doing individual programs here and there, while certainly it's it's great for the communities, it's not going to, it's not scaled. And therefore, if we're talking about the health of the most vulnerable folks, and we're talking about millions and millions of people who are nutrition insecure, mm -hmm. a key part of that has to be the role of policy. Uh, right. While we, even as we continue uh, having our programs in various communities throughout the country, again, we realize that uh, the gold standard, the holy grail is around uh, federal and state policy. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the Produce Prescription Program. Can you just briefly uh, describe that program for listeners that might not be familiar with it? So the Produce Prescription Program is essentially a lot like it sounds. The idea is uh, if I am someone who is um, 
uh, has, has a chronic disease like heart disease or diabetes or I'm obese, or I am trending towards having something like hypertension or diabetes, and my uh, healthcare provider in uh, a, having, a, a say, a routine uh, screen, maybe it's a physical or whatever, does a kind of screening to determine that I am either at risk or I have a particular chronic health condition, that provider can write a prescription for healthy produce. And then I take that prescription and uh, depending on uh, the, the type of program, uh, the particular, the way you fulfill the prescription uh, will vary. And that really depends on the community who we're working with. But the, the uh, fulfillment can look something like a voucher that you take to a farmer's market or you take to a supermarket, or it could be a gift card that you take to a supermarket, or it can be like a debit card that you can take to uh, a, a, a supermarket uh, or a farmer's market or things like that. And it's preloaded with a benefit. And I then redeem it for healthy fruits and vegetables. And what happens in any true produce prescription program, because again, I have a healthcare provider who's making that referral, is that that provider's also monitoring my uh, particular uh, health metrics. So for instance, body mass index, or blood glucose, like A1C, which measures a blood glucose over a roughly three-month period, or my, my hypertension, or my blood pressure, uh, things like that. So looking at those metrics and following them over time as a way to show the impact of consuming healthy fruits and vegetables on those various uh, health metrics. And it seems so powerful when it comes to a condition like prediabetes, which uh, you know, affects such a large number of, of people. And at, during that time in t- typical medicine, nothing is, very little is done to prevent the progression of the disease. But we know that the dietary interventions like eating more vegetables can really prevent it from becoming full-blown diabetes. So I, to me, it seems like a very am- ambitious and potentially impactful project. Um, Absolutely. You talked about uh, Medicaid and Medicare. What do you what do you think are the obstacles to achieving that, having that funded by Medicaid and Medicare at the federal level? Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge is that we need more data to make the case for the cost savings on the system. At the end of the day, being able to show an improvement in healthcare outcomes, a reduction in healthcare costs, and an improvement of patient experience. Those are sort of the three uh, core elements of what we call sort of the value-based care model. Mm -hmm. And so um, everything that we do in terms of produce prescription, uh, we want to collect data, the, the, the sort of classic data, but also as importantly, there are things like stories. So mm-hmm. uh, being able to uh, have conversations with folks who've been in those programs who tell really powerful stories about the impact, not just on them, but in fact, often on their entire family. Uh, because what we know is that we're talking about vulnerable communities, vulnerable folks, And we're not simply talking about the individual or the identified patient or index patient, but they're also part of a family system. 
And right. so those kinds of stories are incredibly powerful in terms of making the case. So the stories along with the data are key mm-hmm. in terms of advocating and furthering policy so that we achieve uh, the, the ultimate goal, again, of getting this embedded as a permanent part of, of some of the federal and state policy. Right. I think and hope you'll find out that treating something like prediabetes with uh, more fruits and vegetables is certainly a more cost-effective approach than the the drugs that become, you know, the standard of treatment after a person has diabetes. Absolutely. Yes. I was intrigued to see that you are an ordained minister, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your role as a minister informs your work in the world of nutrition security. So the best way to, to, to answer that, I, I think for me, uh, a lot of what I say is that my spirituality uh, is really all about this world. It's very this worldly. I'm, I'm not too concerned with the afterlife that will take care of itself. And so uh, one of the key ways I feel that I can live out my spirituality and my faith is through uh, the work in the here and now in the world to make it more just, uh, to uh, remove barriers to access. In this case, we're talking about healthy fruits and vegetables. But um, of course, I've been in public health for two decades and I've worked in HIV AIDS as well. Uh, and a big part of my work there was around uh, increasing access uh, to um, preventative uh, resources, tools, condoms, post-it, pre-exposure prophylaxis, those sorts of things. But the idea is, uh, how is the work that I am doing contributing to human flourishing? And Mm -hmm. uh, so I like to say, I want to create, I want to be a part of creating a world where you have heaven on earth uh, and that the earth is so fabulous that there's no need for, for heaven. Uh, And so that's really sort of my philosophy. And so I see this work around uh, food and uh, nutrition, uh, improving nutrition security or access to nutritious uh, food as one way to contribute to human flourishing, plain and simple. I think that's so moving and such an interesting perspective to think about food and nutrition advocacy and social justice work as a spiritual practice. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time to come. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Ben. Thank you. It was a pleasure to, uh, to be here. That was Ben Perkins, CEO of Wholesome Wave. You can learn more about all the work that Wholesome Wave is doing at wholesomewave.org. Leanne Brown's cookbook, Good and Cheap, Eat Well on $4 a Day, began as her master's thesis project in food studies at NYU. She wrote it to help people on a tight budget, especially SNAP recipients. She's always offered the book for free as a PDF, and it's been downloaded more than 15 million times. You can buy a printed copy of it as well, and if you do, another copy will be given away to someone who needs it. Today, there are more than 500,000 copies in print. Wow, those are some numbers. Welcome, Leanne. (laughs) Hi, Joy. Nice to be here. It's been a few years since Good and Cheap was published, but it it feels very relevant to me now, especially due to the uptick in food insecurity around the pandemic last year. Is it still being downloaded regularly? Did you see more people downloading it in in 2020? 
Yes. I mean, here's the thing. It's a little hard to sort of tell ourselves a, like a really helpful sort of data-driven story in that way from those numbers because the numbers are sort of because of the nature of the internet, the way, because it's a free download, kind of the more it gets out there, the more it's linked in different places, the more it just gets downloaded generally. So it has been sort of going up steadily in this sort of strange, magical way. And I did, I didn't exactly, I don't feel comfortable saying, oh, it definitely went up more sort of during the pandemic. But what I did experience sort of anecdotally was a lot more people reaching out to me um, once again, um, hearing more from media again, um, just uh, sort of hearing more deliberately from people once again, as so many people were struggling. It's not, I mean, I think the thing is the relevance of it remains sort of constant as we live in this world where as a culture, we sort of, you know, it's an awful thing to say, but it's the truth. It's that we have sort of said it's okay for a lot of people to be hungry and to sort of not have their needs met. Yeah. Um, it you know, is a perennial say, issue. It's always an issue, right? And um, it's one that I know you and I and many people are always working on, always willing to fight on and, and trying to shift, but it's it's a perennial sort of cultural blind spot thing that we accept. Um, and so it's always relevant. But, but obviously, <laughs> your point is, of course, well taken that during the pandemic, at the same time, I think so many people were reorienting themselves, um, kind of almost re really having to go through the sort of force shift of how they felt about themselves in the kitchen and, and how they had to um, manage sort of their food intake and the way that they feed their bodies. And their food budget. Well, exactly. Yes. And so all of that is linked to budget and linked to so many sort of behaviors that, that we experience. And so because of that, and it was so acute and so kind of intense, and I think, frankly, for many people, whether it truly was survival or not, because in many cases, yes, you know, when we're talking about budget, it's like survival, like in the truest sense, but also in this sort of other, maybe less acute, less like physical sense, more in an emotional way, I think many people were feeling very, very worried and anxious about it. And like, can I keep up with this? Do I know how to feed myself this way? You know, how do I handle this with perhaps a home full of kids there all the time when they're used to getting meals from different places? All those kinds of uh, factors that can feel can feel really overwhelming in the body, even if they aren't sort of directly survival based. Yeah. As I've explored the topic of hunger for this um season in edible communities magazines you know our feature story is about hunger i've definitely encountered sort of two schools of thought of dealing with insecurity one of them is that people need more money basically they need more you know money so they can buy more healthy fruits and vegetables and there's another yeah. thread that's people need more education in the kitchen people mm. need recipes and they need to learn how to cook and i it seems like based on your work that you would fall i mean i think it's obvious that people need both but you have uh, done a lot in the education space do you think that people do you have an impression of the cooking skills in general in north america i know you're canadian you live here in the states what is your take on people's current culinary literacy shall we say well, so I guess if I don't, yeah, agree exactly in that binary, like I, I totally think that everyone needs more money. I mean, I, and I truly think in terms of like the quickest road to be helpful, I think more money is 
the choice. I would I would say that pretty unequivocally. Whereas, and I think the reason that you see me sort of working in this area around education and empowerment is because that's sort of where I have something to give. You know, that's like what I, that's what I can offer. And I believe, obviously, that it very much goes hand in hand. But I would say, I guess. It's not even just about education. It's really about something deeper. And that is a self, a belief in yourself that you can do it, which is, I think, what, in my experience, talking with many, many people, you know, cooking itself is pretty simple. It's just, it's physical. It's a physical act. Um, It's something that you can watch a video, you can read a book, you can watch someone do it. There's so many ways into learning it. And, you know, you can literally just if you can make yourself a sandwich, if you can boil yourself some pasta, if you can open a can of beans and mix it with something, then you can cook. Like it really is that simple. You can sort of have success, have a very low bar to success. And yet what I notice is that for many people that just really isn't, not only is that sort of doesn't feel like enough, it actually, it feels like something that they're really lacking. And a lot of people who grow up maybe not so lucky to have a home life where there's a lot of cooking and and food preparation sort of presented in a a sort of healthy manner. I don't mean healthy in the sense of like fruits and vegetables, but I just mean in the sense of it's present, you know, it's not something that has to be a really big deal or that's emotionally fraught or sort of heavy or loaded in any way, but it's just a part of people's lives. And many people do not have that. And I think that that's sort of the bigger thing is really this belief that, that tortures like genuine. And I know that sounds so overwrought, but it really is true. That so, so many people, myself included at, at many times, I noticed this within myself that we can just really put so much pressure on creating meals in a particular way. And I think when you sort of have no background in it and suddenly you're off in an adult role, whether it's because, you know, you're young and on your own for the first time, or maybe you have children or a family or something has shifted and you're suddenly feeling a need to take on more in the kitchen and don't feel up for it, that can be extremely difficult. And I find that many people are sort of overwhelmed and don't necessarily have the resources to sort of take it on, can often give up easily or just be really, really hard on themselves and and feeling like that, you know, really what I said at the beginning, like if you're making a sandwich, it's okay. That is enough. It is enough. And it is a starting point and you can go, you can go further or you can accept that as it is and accept yourself to be where that is. It depends on you know how much do you enjoy it? How much time do you want to spend on it? You know, I have this one friend of mine and he absolutely hates cooking. And yet at the same time, I know that something that's so important to him is to have, you know, meals on the table for his kid and his partner every day. And and when I visit him, I notice him um, making food for me without my having to ask, just like always making sure it's available at these times. You know, I happen to know that he had a childhood that was somewhat erratic and his family didn't always provide meals on a regular basis. And so it's something to him that is love. It's so important to have that stability and it means something to him. And so that is what drives him to create these meals, even though the actual act of it doesn't he doesn't enjoy it. And so it was so important. I remember when we first met, he would talk to me all the time about how much he hated cooking and how much he resented it. And it's sort of been interesting to watch him as we've had conversations over the years. I can see him being more comfortable with himself now. And he makes these sort of simple meals out of just a few ingredients. And But he does it regularly. He just gets it done. He still says he doesn't enjoy it. But 
he enjoys the act of love that's behind it. And that's where he's, that's his motivation from. And so, sorry, this is a very long winded answer, but it's like, I think that these, it's like, these are these really unexplored sort of experiences that we have in the kitchen. And I think that's so much of what keeps us stuck or feeling, whether it's budget-based or it's something that's budget and something more, or it's something completely different. These sorts of things are what can make us feel so uncomfortable, so scared, so anxious when we go into the kitchen. And that's what can then stop us also from learning and from getting better and feeling any sort of mastery is if you always feel this like hideous, furious tension in your body every time you cook or spend time in the kitchen, like, yeah, of course, you're going to avoid that, right? And if you have a very limited budget for food, you can't afford Mm -hmm. to make something, have it turn out wrong and then order a pizza. So the confidence is really key. That's Um, right. And so you have to develop this very flexible attitude, which is so hard, you know, where you just have to go like, okay, I am going to eat whatever we make. And you know what? That's okay. And I think it can be hard if you're shoveling food that you really don't like into your face, not to blame yourself. And I think even harder than that, with that relationship with yourself sometimes can also be that relationship with other people. If you have children that take care and if you're going, oh gosh, I tried to make this thing and I did my best, but you know, it really isn't good. And I feel bad eating it. And my kids are complaining and you know, I, of course they are. And so I, I feel like they're ungrateful, but also it isn't good. And like all those feelings are so hard to manage. And it's like we need to develop these really robust sorts of emotional skills to sort of just go, you know, it's okay to have a meal that actually isn't very good. So long as it's edible, that's okay. You still did your best and that is normal. You'll have another chance in a few hours. Exactly. You're going to have a chance tomorrow and just don't hold yourself. If we can let go of that and not tell ourselves a story, well, that's how I am. I always do that. I'm a bad cook. This is what I do. And when we hold on to that, then we, of course, can't move forward. And we're also just making ourselves so miserable. And just, it hurts, you know, that kind of experience. And I I think learning to work through that stuff is so, so important. I do think your book has lots of resources and recipes in it that can help a home cook build confidence. I'm, I still think about the, I think you called it stuff on toast or food on toast. It really, <laughs> yeah. like... Makes it simple. Um, And I was wondering, you know, it's been uh, several years. Do you still have a recipe that you like to cook out of the book a lot? Is what's what's your favorite or what is um, what's still with you? Yes, I definitely do. I will say that for myself, I've never been one to exactly. I don't usually make the exact same thing over again, um, except sort of in broad strokes. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I make the chana masala in some version or another. I make stuff on toast all the time, whether it's the exact ones from the book or if it's, it's, you know, some version I am constantly inspired by and riffing. Well, that's what the book teaches. Like I, I think that section in particular is, you know, encourages you to take whatever it is that you have and make it into, you know, a wonderful meal or snack. Yes. Yes. And I think that is, that's sort of what, as I'm talking about all these sort of emotional experiences, I think that's such a sort of beautiful medicine to all those, that anxiety and all that stuff is just to have those moments where actually you can just have success at making something on your own that isn't maybe Mm -hmm. as recipe focused. Because I think if you can do that in simple ways, it's so empowering. It's really an experience like a full body feeling experience that, oh, I can do this. Go right. Oh, 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 okay. 
this isn't quite the magic that, or the like exact formula that it feels like, you know, so many people experience recipes as basically like a chemistry assignment from high school that they're like about ready to fail. And it's like, you know what? It's really not like that. It's actually much more like finger painting or something. Um, and the, you know, the results are, um, first off, you're not being graded. <laughs> right. True. Except maybe by your family. By your family. And then you can be like, well, you guys need to, you know, that we're all in this together. So why you get to grade me? Um, that's sort of a discussion to be had. But also, you know, the stakes just aren't that high. And I think we just need to experience what that really feels like so we can start to trust it. And I think things like that, doing like a simple things on toast where it's like, yeah, I can make toast. And oh, yeah, you know what? I have some zucchini. I can like... I can kind of figure out how to like add some garlic to that in a pan and make that something yummy. And then you have it and it's actually pretty good. And it usually sort of defies your expectations in a good way. I think that would be just so, whoa, it builds that self-trust, right? True. And confidence. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, as part of the project that I've been working on, uh, the article that we have in the, in the Fall Issues of Edible Communities magazines and some other segments of this very podcast, um, I've been talking a lot about food insecurity versus nutrition insecurity and the importance of getting nutrient dense food to people. Um, so I thought that given your expertise on budget cooking, that you might have some inexpensive uh, grocery staples from the produce section that you could mention as a good thing to buy and cook with if you're on a very limited budget, whether you're it's a snap budget or just a small budget. Yeah. So I think obvious, but certainly seasonality is really important. So right now we're in the summer. And so you can get a lot of, you know, things like zucchini, um, which I had just mentioned, zucchini is very inexpensive right now. Tomatoes are cheaper than they usually are. Although I generally would go with canned tomatoes, even canned corn, even at this time of year, depending, um, can be uh, cheaper and is really a wonderful, uh, a wonderful product uh, that you can you don't have to worry about storage um, and is very, very high quality. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think canned vegetables are pretty great a lot of the time. Not all of them, um, but many of them are really great. Same with and frozen vegetables. Often they are already pre-cut, you know, uh, frozen cauliflower often is about is like half the price of the fresh stuff. It's already chopped for you. It's ready to go. It's very easy to use in a recipe. So I do find it's sort of, you're like, oh, I happen to actually be getting some more con convenience for this. And, and it's a little less expensive as well, um, which is unusual. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so sort of base. It almost always sounds a little bit too simple, but really, yes. Um, looking at this, the seasonal stuff that's available like zucchini, which is so delicious. And really, if you have garlic, if you have some onion, if you have even just as simple as salt and pepper and some anything else that is, or like a tiny bit of sausage, like zucchini takes on so much flavor from other stuff. And even just salt will bring out its natural, just lovely, lovely flavor. And you can get a lot of it for, for very little. And it's just a wonderful vegetable, I think, to really embrace at this time of year. You know, it's sort of a funny, like classic, we all, or not we all, I'm sure like people who grew up in the Midwest or in Canada where I'm from, uh, zucchini grows so, so plentifully in people's gardens. It's almost like a weed. And you, if you have a friend with a garden, they'll be like, oh my God, take my zucchinis off my <laughs> at some point. Um, and it can feel like, oh gosh, I don't want this much zucchini. But it's really, really lovely. Um, it's sort of something to be embraced for that short period of the summer where it is so plentiful. 
um, and really delicious. I understand you have a new book coming in January 2021. This will be airing in the fall, so not that far off at this point. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little about it? Sure. Um, well, I guess I've sort of been telling you a little bit about it in the way that I've been answering my questions because it's so focused on it's going to be it's called Good Enough and it is a cookbook, but it's also full of a lot of personal uh, essays and um, sort of experiences of of me personally and sort of sharing the work that I've done kind of how to feel how to feel good while you're cooking and so I what I keep really thinking about it's called good enough and it's very much about thinking of of course your food whatever meal it is it's good enough Um, but also thinking first of yourself as good enough yourself as good enough to be able to create food that is good enough for you and to be able to orient yourself so that cooking can be the beautiful act of self-care that I think it really is meant to be and that can be so so healing and that you can have um, at any budget but that there's, you know, a reality that we have to work through. I think a lot of fears and anxieties, um, and I know I certainly have, I've battled with anxiety and depression over the years and certainly over the last bunch of years. And since I had, um, I had my daughter and sort of, so I just tried to share that as honestly and openly as I could and share what I've learned and in the hopes that people will be able to sort of benefit from my experience and feel uh, feel good about them. So, I mean, really all my recipes, I think all my recipes, it's never been, I'm always so thrilled to hear that someone sort of adapted or made changes to my recipes because, you know, their starting point, I want everyone to make them their own. And then what matters to me is that you feel good, that you feel empowered, that you feel confident in your life. And that when you make food, you feel good while you're doing it. And that it doesn't matter what the outcome is, you know, that maybe, you know, we're, if we're icing a cake together, I want us just Maybe it's lopsided and goofy looking at the end, but we had a beautiful time and we felt good while we were doing it and we celebrated that at the end. And that's sort of how I want, that's that's the book that I'm creating is like about really addressing that, how we feel while we make the recipes rather than the outcome. Well, I'm really excited to read it. I agree with everything you've said about cooking being healing and um, I, I can't wait till it is available and I get to take it to my kitchen. Yay, I can't wait to share it with you, Joy. Well, thanks for being with us. Thank you. That was author Leanne Brown. Learn more about her work at leannebrown.com. Mark Winnie is a food activist who's worked on issues related to hunger and nutrition for 50 years. He's an author and a senior advisor to the Food Policy Networks Project at the Johns Hopkins University Center for a Livable Future. His most recent book, Food Town USA, explores seven often overlooked American cities that are now leading the food movement. Thanks for being with us today, Mark. Thank you for having me. So I've been thinking a lot lately about the distinction between food insecurity and nutrition insecurity. I wrote about that in my article for Edible Communities this season, and I'm wondering, how do you feel about those terms? You have a long perspective on this topic, and it seems like the preferred terms maybe are changing. What, what do you think the difference is? Well, the terms are always in flux. But the main difference that I see is, first of all, we measure, officially measure food insecurity. It's, it's one of the things that the U.S. Department of Agriculture does annually, and so there's really sort of fairly precise measures around 
you know, what constitutes food insecurity and security. Nutrition security or insecurity is not used as commonly and generally would refer more to it, you know, an individual's or, or a household's nutritional health, dietary health at any point. When we think about food insecurity, we tend to take a, have a bigger context. We think about the socioeconomic conditions of a community. We also think about you know, issues around racial equity have entered the discussion more recently. So it tends to have a somewhat larger context, even more you know, in terms of its relationship to the food system and to a particular community. But nevertheless, I think, you know, nutrition security is always something that we are paying attention to because ultimately what we're always talking about is the dietary health, nutritional health of the individual. Right. I think the idea of nutrition insecurity is to talk about the quality of the calories that people need and not just the quantity of them. Absolutely right. I mean, I think this is it. When I think about nutrition security, I, my, my brain immediately goes to some of the questions we have of overweight, obesity, and mm-hmm. diet-related illnesses, which are growing. And I would say that those problems eclipse at this point those related to food insecurity. Some people might disagree with me on that, but if you look at the numbers on the projections that have been made by public health officials the growth in obesity and subsequently illnesses such as diabetes is really astounding and very scary. I mean, there are projections now that 60% of the people in certain states, particularly in the South, will be obese. And the consequences of that for our health, for quality of life, for our communities is serious, very serious. Yeah, both important terms. In the introduction to Food Town USA, you define the food movement as the people, and I'm quoting you here, the people who are committed to healing the failures of the conventional food system with entirely new ways of producing and distributing food. How does that intersect with hunger and food and nutrition insecurity in your view? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's it's been interesting. I have the advantage, or maybe a disadvantage, I'm not sure, sort of following the growth of various kinds of food activities over over a pretty long career. And, you know, there there were essentially were two very large movements. One was to you know, look at the quality of food, look at where it's produced, look at, you know, the the evolution of the of organic food and its importance and uh, sustainable production and looking at the impact of food production on the environment and people thinking about their own health and getting, you know, both food that's healthy, local, sustainable. That was one very large stream, you might say, a river of the food movement. And a somewhat parallel track was the concern about hunger, which really didn't manifest itself until probably officially the 1990s, the mid-1990s. And then we began to see the growth in food banks, Uh, food banks having started up in the late 1970s, early 1980s, but becoming more and more prominent across the U.S. as a response to higher levels of poverty, declines in the social welfare system in the U.S., sort of politically the country turning against a lot of the sort of programs, nutrition-related programs like 
what was then food stamps and now is SNAP. So we had this growth in hunger and awareness of hunger. At the same time, we had a very strong awareness of where our food was coming from and how it was produced and what the consequences of that were for our individual health and environment. Fortunately, those two movements came together. And now we are seeing people who both sides paying attention you know, to the quality of the food that they're eating, where it's produced, how it's produced, a movement that in the on the local side, you might say, the local sustainable side, which was pretty much all white, white, light, and bright, as I like to say, is now you know much more, I think, merged with a community that is you know coming out of communities of color, communities of color who are just as concerned about the fact that they're not eating very well, that they're not eating higher on the food chain, so to speak, who are producing more of their own food. So, you know, communities, so this merging, which might seem a little confusing to people, really did have the effect of, of, at a community level, at a very local level of people paying attention to farmers markets and paying attention to urban gardens and farm to table restaurants and just uh, really a whole sort of wonderful explosion of good and healthy food. But at the same time, they asked themselves a question and they took responsibility for the fact that a good portion of their community was not eating that well, you know, that there was still high levels of food insecurity. Right. So I, you know, I, I may sound, sometimes I perhaps sound a little Pollyannish on this subject, but I, I have seen across the country in my working communities that there's a real coming together of, of concerns about hunger and concerns about where our food is coming from and how it is produced. I think your book actually illustrates this really well with the case studies of the city. And I would definitely encourage anybody who wants to sort of see that merging illuminated to to check it out. It, it really sort of helped me connect those dots in a, in a, in a new way. Well, another thing that you say in the book is that you define the success of a city in part by its ability to ensure everyone is well nourished. Can you tell me how incidences of food insecurity affect whole communities, how it impacts people, even people who have plenty to eat, and that's not an issue in their own individual life? Well, I think you don't have to look any further than, say, the growth of food banks and food pantries and emergency food sites. There's, you know, keep in mind that I tell people that are younger than me, and that's just about everybody, that you know, food banks weren't didn't even come on the scene until the night, late 1970s. There, we really didn't have any. And today we have over 200 major food banks in this country. And those are really large warehouse operations. And then we have 60,000 plus food pantries, smaller, local, neighborhood, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, running from those that are very professional and professionally staffed to those that are very, you know, very much a volunteer effort. You know, that's that's really new stuff. I mean, that is not that has not been, you know, part of the American story for all that long. And to me, that represents, you know, probably the greatest sort of individual personal commitment that people have made and expression of their concern that many people in their community just aren't eating that well. You know, there's a lot of other reasons and lots of other stories behind it. But, you know, and and, and I see I saw it in another way. It, it, It manifests itself in other ways. Every community that I visited and every probably just about any significant size community that I've been to or worked with over the last couple of decades 
you know, looks at their farmer's market differently than they used to. For instance, they, you know, they farmer's market being the wonderful place for everybody to shop. Well, not everybody was shopping there because a lot of the times the prices were quite high. Mm-hmm. So we have it's really a significant growth in the number of incentive programs and coupon programs and double up buck programs that have been designed to incentivize lower income people to shop at farmers markets by making them much more affordable. Yeah, I wrote about the Wholesome Waves um, pioneering approach to those SNAP doubling programs at farmers market. It seems to have you know made a big difference. And this has moved into federal policy too. There's yes. you know, ten, tens of millions of dollars are made available by the U.S. Department of Agriculture every year to communities to provide some different forms of incentives to people to shop, mm-hmm. uh, not just at farmers markets, but also to buy fresh produce in some cases at you know conventional retail food stores. So right. you know it's all these things, and and there's many more examples of how communities are just paying attention to to people in their community and and making sure that you know you know I use the term taking care of their own. Mm-hmm. And which is actually I I stole that from Bruce Springsteen, but he hasn't complained <laughs> about it. You know, how do how do we take care of our own? And taking care of our own, I think, is a wonderful concept. And yeah. you, know, you don't you don't do it on your own. It's not just an idea, just a charitable impulse. It's also something that finds its way into public policy. Right. And um, I think it's a good way to be thinking about our community. And food gives us a great way to 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 you know enact our, our our best impulses when it comes to food. My favorite example of that from Food Town USA was the Good Food Project that you wrote about from the Central Louisiana Food Bank. Can you describe how a program like that that is essentially garden-based is, you know, an, a, an improvement or maybe just an evolution from the processed food that is so often a mainstay of food banks? Well, that project is actually run by a food bank. Um, it's run by the Central, I think, like Central Louisiana Food Bank. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I have the name right, but um, that's what the Central Louisiana Food Bank. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the, there the the idea came from the fact that the food bank, you know, was receiving all the same kinds of donated food that food banks tend to get, and you know, and the, not typically the best quality food. Would you say not always the best quality food, and oftentimes food that's harmful to people. So, but like many food banks, they're caught in a quandary. You know, do they say no to the groups, to the companies that are donating food, or do they accept, you know, the bad with the good? And so in this case, they said, well, you know, we just can't turn the food back, but what can we do to increase the amount of good food? Hence, they got into gardening. In fact, at last count, they had over 100 community garden sites and across, uh, I think it was a 12 or 13 county or parish area in central Louisiana. So they really took a very aggressive approach to developing gardens and school gardens and community gardens and larger demonstration gardens and also providing training and support. You know, sometimes gardens don't work that well because the people who are involved with them just don't know a lot about gardening. And so in this case, the food banks said, OK, we're going to provide you know training, technical support, a lot of encouragement. And, you know, that was a very proactive way for them to say, all right, we want to get the best and healthiest food to people. So we're going to do everything we can to encourage you to grow your own, even though we're still going to have to take a lot of the um, 
you know, less healthy food that we have donated right. to our food. And if I recall correctly, you wrote about an educational component as well, where they were teaching kids about vegetables. Um, in some cases, kids that couldn't even really identify vegetables. I believe you wrote about right. using flashcards so that they could, you know, this is an eggplant. This is a zucchini. Yeah. Um, I thought it was very inspiring. If you're ever in Alexandria, Louisiana, which is where they're located, their headquarters, there's a, they this wonderful demonstration garden that was, you know, really, uh, just very kid-friendly, family-friendly, very educational. And I think we're seeing this kind of thing expanded across the country. There are tens of thousands of schools now, for instance, that have have their own gardening programs, sometimes as part of their farm-to-school efforts, you know, to get more local food into their schools. So, you know, gardening and kids and education has been really a very vital and robust part of the food movement. Right. Um, Another thing you talk about a lot in the book is the power of individual action. I find when I talk to people about this subject, they feel a bit powerless and a little overwhelmed. Do you have any advice for listeners who might be inspired to make a difference? Um, How might they go about getting involved in their own cities and towns? Well, you know, there's no lack of opportunity in in the food world and just about any community. I mean, an, an easy, usually an easy entry point would be a, a food pantry or a food bank because they're always accepting volunteers. You know, they they really proved their mettle in during COVID, and you know, volunteers were often threatened and in a in a sense of you know they were at risk. You know, working in a food bank and being subject to the spread of of COVID, but they showed up and they did their job. And so there's a you know that's certainly a good opportunity. Another place that I encourage people to get involved is with local food policy councils. You know, this has been a growing part of the food movement. We have uh, almost 300 in the United States now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they look at the whole food system. They look at all the parts out there and all the things we've been talking about and many more. And so, you know, that's a good place to get involved. Um, it's always good to be thinking, you know, beyond just the immediate project or the immediate activity itself. And, and try to help, you know, educate yourself, in other words, you know, why do we have these conditions in this community or in this country? You know, what are the underlying causes? You know, what are some of the things I can be doing that would maybe eliminate the root causes of hunger? Maybe I should be looking at, you know, higher wages, higher, you know, quality of life and living standards for people, better educational systems. You know, I'll, 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 sometimes these lead to people becoming more engaged politically as, as a solution to some of the underlying causes of hunger. Yeah, those are all great points. I'm definitely going to look in to see if my city has a food policy council. That sounds like a really actionable, interesting way to go about it. Yeah, we have, I'll, I'll, I'll encourage people. We have something called foodpolicynetworks.org. If you go to foodpolicynetworks.org, that's the site at the at the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins, where I spend part of my time. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. Good. And lists all the food policy councils in the United States. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Joy. That was Mark Winnie. He is the author of the book, Food Town USA, and you can learn more about Mark and his work at his website, which is www.markwinnie.com. That's M-A-R-K-W-I-N-N-E. 
Thank you for joining us today on Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.